I'm not going to give you anything on biblical separation this morning, um, but I'm going to give you uh, what was talked about just a little bit earlier, and that was an, uh, another plan, I guess, of uh, evangelism. And um, this has come, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to bear my heart to you this morning, and uh, as the preacher said, that, you know, when, when you have a desire to see souls get saved, you, you come up with the, you go with the book, so all right, what can I use here? And then you learn the Romans road. Because every Baptist, I think that's a, it's a, uh, it must be a sacred thing to learn the Romans road. And everybody says this is it. And I used the Romans road for years. And it is still a good method of evangelism. However, here's the problem we're having in America today. And I'll tell you what, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into this. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we uh, again are thankful for all that you've done. Lord, bless now. Mere human beings, Lord, trying to deal with divine things. We need all the help we can get. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit in this, uh, this room, Lord, to speak and help us and teach us. We're, we're all in need of teaching, Lord. So teach us some things from thy word this morning and help us, Lord. Our, our heart's desire is to see people get saved. We need our heads worked on a little bit, our hearts worked on a lot. And, but our, our desire, Father, is to see people get saved. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that you'd teach us this morning. Well, thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Here's, here's the problem. And, and um, this, I, I, do, I do more public preaching and, and public ministry and, and that than I do door, knocking on doors. I like to knock on doors. However, I don't, I, 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 most of the time now, depending on what neighborhood you go in, I worked with inner city people for 11 years. We worked in the housing projects. We ran a bus in the inner city twice a week, picked kids up, ministered probably to 120 uh, uh, inner city children every every week, and uh, by going by a white man going through the housing projects, spending a year working with the children, I could knock on their doors. They say, "Oh, come on in, Brother Walker." And they trusted me because I took care of their children, and that was good. Knocking on the doors in the housing projects because they knew me. I had no problem getting in. But you go to the average white middle class neighborhood, and I'm telling you, it's 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 a drag. It really is. You might have to knock on, you know, 20 doors to have one person even open the door and talk to you. And if they do, they're, they're, you know, they've got the door open like this because they're scared to death of you. And, uh, you know, the dog is barking and all that. I mean, you can do it that way. And, and eventually the Lord will open a door and you can talk to some people. But on the street, they can't slam a door in your face. On the street, man, you can say what needs to be said, even if they're walking by. I mean, you've got two minutes from when they hear your voice on this side of the street to when they can't hear your voice over here. You've got two minutes to say what you need to say. And I like working on the street. I like, I like going to the parks and different places like that because there's always somebody sitting around. We had a, a street meeting I'm just thinking of in um, Finley, Ohio. No, Lima, Ohio, uh, last summer. And uh, while the guys were preaching, I looked around. There's, there's people just sitting. I thought, all right, get my handful of tracks, go over there and start witnessing to those people, you know, on those benches. And they're open. I can sit and I can talk to them, you know. I don't have a dog barking there and I don't have a screen door I have to fight with. And here's, here's, here's what, here's what I'm, I'm finding out. Thirty years ago, the average American went to Sunday school. He learned the Ten Commandments. He even said Pledge of Allegiance in the school you know, under God. And nowadays, the average American, because God's been kicked out of the school, and the Bible's been kicked out of the school, 
prayer has been kicked out of school. And by the way, if they want, want you to pay more taxes to take care of the schools, I always tell them this. If my God ain't welcome, his book ain't welcome, his commandments ain't welcome, my money sure ain't welcome. So vote against any, any tax raises in the public school. But uh, all that stuff has been gone. Parents aren't sending their children to Sunday school anymore. So the average person in America doesn't have a clue what sin is anymore. Now the Roman, Romans wrote works when you say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and in their mind they're clicking their sins. We're dealing with people now in America that don't know what sin is. I mean, you've got a, you, there was a guy in the White House before the, uh, President Bush was there that was doing what he was doing and getting a 60% approval rating. That tells me Americans have no clue what sin is. You know, the average American, you ask the average American what sin is, and I'll tell you, here's, here's the sins of America, okay? Wearing a fur coat, cutting down a tree that some stupid owl lives in, you know, driving an SUV, and being a fundamentalist. Those are the four big sins of America. So Americans don't know what sin is. Now, let me also say this. Evangelism is sowing, watering, and reaping. If the emphasis has been on reaping and not sowing, eventually there's not going to be a crop to reap. We're not sowing enough in America anymore. We want to go out and bang, bang, bang and get a, get, a, get, a, get a soul and have them pray whether they get saved or not. I think David Cloud calls that easy prayerism. It ain't easy believism. Getting saved is easy believism. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. It's this easy prayerism that bothers me. We need to sow the Word of God. Any, any, any farmers in here? If you're a farmer, you know that it's, it's wonderful to, to have a harvest. But man, if you don't plant another crop, you ain't getting another harvest. And we're not sowing enough of the Word of God, and we're not watering enough. And we're going to come to a place where we're not going to be able to get a harvest. Now, here's my frustration. For years, I'd be out preaching, and... We, we, every last four years, we've gone to uh, Memphis, Tennessee in May. Memphis in May. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Memphis in May is a three-day drunk on Beale Street. How many have ever, ever been there understand what I'm talking about? Beale Street is the western, uh, the central Mississippi version of uh, Mardi Gras. And we have a group of street preachers that get together. It's called a Blitz. In fact, we had a Blitz in, uh, New York, in the state of New York in August. Uh, Buffalo, Rochester, and Niagara Falls. Covered three cities in three days. They have blitzes in San Francisco in September. But the big deal is Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, this Beale Street, uh, the home of blues, man. You walk down Beale Street, there's a statue of Elvis Presley. How more spiritual can you be? But uh, we'll go down and we'll preach to that crowd. They're all, they're all drinking. They're all sm- they smoke dope right on the street and the police are there, but they're not going to do anything about it. They're there for crowd control. That's it. You've got nudity that goes on and all that kind of stuff. And we'll go down there and we'll preach to that crowd. March up and down that street. Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. And uh, you know what we run into a lot? We run into a lot of people that come from the biggest Baptist church in America. 20,000 membership, Memphis, Tennessee, Adrian Rogers. 
And they'll stand there with their mixed drink in one hand and their cigarette in the other hand and their little short shorts and little tank top and say, what the blankety blank are you doing down here? I'm saved. I said, well, tell me how you got saved. I went to the altar and I said a prayer. We hear that over and over and over again. I said a prayer. I repeated a prayer. Some guy said, repeat the prayer. I repeated the prayer. He told me I was saved. I guess I'm saved. Now, from that... I, I, no, I said, Lord, there's got to be something. There's something wrong with this picture. So I go into the Bible, and it's always good when you're confused to go to the Bible, amen? And I got to thinking about the Romans Road. I said, okay, Romans Road. What's missing? What's missing in the Romans Road? And again, it's a good outline. It's a great outline. But man, if you don't put any meat on the bones, you've got nothing. For example, you go through the Romans Road... Is there any, any plan that you've ever read of the Romans road that emphasizes the blood of Christ? Romans 5, 8, Christ, God committed his love towards us and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3.25 said it's by faith in his blood. Amen. Now does the Romans road emphasize the blood? Uh, I've got another question. I mean, we're talking about Jesus dying. Who, who was he? Who was he? What Romans road did, did, is there that tells you who Jesus is? I mean, if you're not straight on who Jesus is, listen, you can say to a Jehovah Witness, you know, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? They'll say, yeah, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus to a Jehovah Witness is Michael the Archangel. You say to a Mormon, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Sure I do. He's Lucifer's brother. You say to a Roman Catholic, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's that little baby Mary keeps holding. Or that's that dead person hanging on the cross. Well, that's not my Jesus. He ain't dead no more. Amen? So there's... there's and and what, what Romans wrote... And there may be some, but what book have you, used, have you read that's emphasized repentance? So I get thinking about these things. And I thought, oh, there's, 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 there's got to be something here. So I went to the Bible. And, sweetheart, could you get me a cup of water, please? If you could. I went to the Bible and I began to look up terms. And I looked for the word soul winning in the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a soul winner. I believe in it. But I also know there's a false kind of soul winning going on that's doing more damage than it is good. Thank you. So I went to the Bible and I looked up the word soul winning. You know where, how many times I found it? I found it this many times. Now we get the term from Proverbs 11.30, through the right street of life, he that winneth souls is wise. Now that's where it comes from. But you don't find the term one time in your Bible. When I hear human beings emphasizing a term more than God does, a red flag goes up in my head. And I'm thinking, we better be careful about this. I mean, God knows how much to emphasize and what words to use, and if we've got it the other way around, there may be a problem. Then I looked up another word. I looked up evangelism or evangelist. I found that three times. I found that in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, which is a reference to Philip as being an evangelist. I think that's the only evangelist we know of in the Bible. And what's interesting about Philip is he, um, he was preaching in Samaria and I had a great revival meeting there. But you know, when he met that Ethiopian eunuch, you know where he was preaching? He was preaching on the street, wasn't he? And my opinion of evangelism is preaching in churches because the second time the word shows up is in Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the gifts as a ministering to the body so half the work of the evangelist is to minister to the body. 
But it seems to me the other half ought to be on the street. And we've got professional evangelists that travel around the country that, uh, and, see, and this, is such a, this is such a rare meeting here, and this is, this is wonderful here, because the average conference around the country is evangelist comes in, he goes out to eat, everybody goes out to eat, they don't pray, maybe pray a little bit over the, over the meal, you know, those minute kind of deals. Then they'll go play golf or racquetball, which I, haven't, I don't have anything against that, but I'm just saying this is, the, this is the way it goes. Then they'll come in in the evening, there's an evening meal, then they'll preach, you know, and then the next day it's some other activity. Man, why, why, listen, you realize what would happen if, if every Bible conference and every camp meeting in this country would start in a prayer room like we start this morning and pray in the afternoon. But that's that's what's happened to evangelism now. Man, I'm telling you. I told my wife when we got in, I said, we're not going to fall into that stuff. I I get in trouble occasionally because we'll get in these meetings, you know, and have great preaching in the morning and then some activity in the afternoon and preaching in the night. I I, I said, I've got to go preach on the street. I've got to go do something. Like you go soul winning in the afternoon, yeah. You get pumped up, you gotta go out, you gotta do something. And listen, you know, golf doesn't do it for me, amen? And I usually try to find some people who say, hey, let's just, and I don't try to cause a problem. I ask the preacher, is that okay? Preacher says, that's okay, let's go out. I've got a few guys here. Let's, can we go and preach on the street? We've been up in Charlevoix preaching on the street, Petoskey, those cities we were talking about. You know, just, just, because I, you know, that seems to be the natural thing. I mean, if you're getting all this good preaching and the Spirit of God is moving in you, the natural, natural, natural thing is to get out and proclaim it. Amen? Amen. That's that. But evangelism has become a professional thing. And never, when we've gone out to preach on the street, if, to my recollection, has any evangelist gone with us. Because, you know, there's, there's a golf contest. You know, or there's a boating trip. I'll tell you, I'm bearing my heart. Bear with me, Okay. <laughs> And the third time evangelist, the word evangelist shows up in the Bible, 2 Timothy 4, 5, where Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And if history is correct, you know how Timothy died? He was walking down the street one day, maybe month of May, maybe, but there was a crowd of pagans marching down the street. I don't know if it was to Mary or some other false god. And as they marched down the street, you know what Timothy did? Timothy said, I've got to say something. And he stood up there and he preached. And he preached until they beat him to death with rods. Doing the work of an evangelist. So no time to soul winning show up. There's one reference to it or one implication of it in Proverbs. Three times does the term evangelist or evangelism show up. The word that God uses 141 times in the New Testament is preach. Preach, preacher, preaches. That's the word God uses. And listen, the thing that we need to do is to preach Christ. That's what we need to do. When you go out to knock on doors, you're going out there not to present a plan, although you should have one, but you're going out there to preach Christ. We need people to preach Jesus. That's what we need. Now, and by the way, preaching is an interesting word. You say, what does preaching mean? I've heard all kinds of definitions of preaching. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, I believe it is. Paul says, Whom we preach, comma, teaching every man and, ex- and warning every man. Teaching every man and warning every man. 
whom we preach, comma, teaching every man and warning every man. You know what preaching is? It's teaching people what God says and then warning them if they don't do what God says. That's what preaching is. And uh, you can preach to a crowd of 5,000 as Peter did, or you can preach to one person. You know, when Philip got in that chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, it says that he preached unto him Jesus. So one-on-one is preaching. Preaching to a crowd of 5,000 is preaching. Now, here's, here's the question. Here's what we need to preach. Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 8. Let's start there. Acts chapter 8, and starting at verse 1. Actually, let's go down to verse 4 first. Now, if the New Testament teaches a plan for evangelism, not the, not, not the plan, but the, the, uh, the methodology, how do you do it? How do you go out and so on and so forth? If it teaches one, it's right here in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Look at it. It says, therefore they, now stop right there. Therefore they, they who? Well, look back at verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they, that's the church, were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we're talking about the church minus the apostles. That's the they. Now, I, I like to tell churches that because a lot of them think it's the preacher's job to go out and win their souls for them. I mean, this is America, man. If, you're, if, you're, if your drain drips, you call a plumber. If your light bulb needs change, you call an electrician. If your oil needs change, you take it to a mechanic. And if souls need to be saved, you hire a preacher. Amen? Isn't that how it works? You know, every one of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. I'm sure you all know that. But then uh, that's the they here in verse 4. That's the church folk. Verse 4 says, Therefore they, the church folk that were scattered abroad, now here's the method, went everywhere preaching the word. That's the method. He says that Thursday night, hey, Thursday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Monday night, whatever night you want to go, whatever day you want to go, everywhere you go, preach Christ. They went everywhere preaching the Word of God. That's the, that's the New Testament way. Some folks are so satisfied because they witness on Thursday night, they'll never open their mouth any other time of the day, any other day of the week. Well, I do that on Thursday night. Hey, man, you're supposed to witness all the time. But uh, notice it says they went everywhere preaching the word. What did they preach? What did they preach? Let me give you some interesting thoughts here, all right? Take your Bible, if you would, and turn over to, uh, I'll turn to First Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start there. He said it must have been preaching the gospel. Yeah, they believe they were preaching the gospel. That's the power of God and salvation. And I get, I get tired of these people, you know, I say, what's the gospel? It's the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. I said, boy, hmm, that's not what the Bible says. I said, sure it is, preacher, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Well, let's see what it says. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. That's the subject right there. So now look down at verse 3. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died. Now, does it stop there? How that Christ died? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Gospel isn't this Christ died. He died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And was buried, and He rose again the third day from the dead, according to the Scriptures. That makes it a little more personal. Anyway, they preached the Gospel. Now, notice again in verse 3, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. How do we know what sin is? How does the average person on the street know what sin is? I told you before, they don't know. The SUV, big sin in America, man. Well, how does a person know? How do we know what sin is? 
Take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 3. If I'm going to preach the gospel, I have got to preach that Christ died for sins. If Christ died for sins, they need to know what sin is. You say, well, it's in their conscience. I've talked to a lot of people. I wonder if they even have a conscience. Let's see what the Bible says sin is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So if you're going to show folks what sin is, you know where you're going to have to go? You're going to have to go what God gave us 3,500 years ago, the law. Now, take your Bible and turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. And look, if you will, at verse eight. Let's start there. But we know that the law is good. Is is a present tense word? Or is it a past tense word? present. If it was past, we'd say the law was good. It is a present tense word. When did Paul write Timothy? He certainly wrote it after the Lord was crucified. He certainly wrote it after 33 AD. Most say he wrote it probably around 55, 60 AD, somewhere in that area. That's well into the New Testament, right? And in the New Testament, the law is good. Now, Continue on. Now, look, let's, let's not stop there. If a man use it lawfully. There's an unlawful use of the law. I remember back in Detroit, uh, oh, back in the years when Van Eppie was still straight. There was some church up there that uh, had a day where they had a bunch of barber chairs put in the front at the altar. And the guy preached, get shorn and get saved. Now, I would call that the unlawful use of the law. I believe in repentance. Repentance takes place here. But you tell somebody, look, you've got to get a haircut first, then you're putting works in it. That's an unlawful use of the law. Anytime you say you have to do this to get saved, you have to perform this to get saved, you have to uh, do this particular thing, that's works. That's works. See, repentance and belief takes place right here. You look at the call of, of, uh, of Levi. Very interesting way. I think it's Luke that says it. Very interesting. The Lord called a Levi, and Luke put it this way. He left all and arose and followed Jesus. How do you leave all without even arising out of your seat? Well, you do it here. In his heart, he said, that's it. I'm done with that. I'm turning from that. I'm turning to him. And that all took place right here. Then he got up and followed Jesus. So there's an unlawful use of the law, but there's a lawful use of it. Now, you say the average Baptist. When you bring up the word law to the average Baptist, boy, it just terrifies them to pieces. But there, there's a lawful use. Look at this thing. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 9 now. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Are we righteous? He is made to me wisdom and righteousness and power. We are righteous in Christ. Amen. So the law in that respect is not for us. But 
for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. That's that crowd out there. That's the wicked crowd. That's the Muslim. That's the drunks and the, and the fornicators. That's the, uh, the good moral person that's not saved. That's who the law for, is for. The ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, for manslayers, whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, homosexuals, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, that's who the law is for. So when we go out and try to deal with people, and listen, again, I'm taking this from the beginning to the end because the average American, the average American doesn't know. We start at the beginning with people that don't know and work it through. Listen, there are people out there today that are so ripe, if you said boo, they'd get saved. But I'm talking about going to a person that does not know, the teenager, the young person that's been raised in the public school, that's watched MTV, and the only thing they know about Christianity is what some comedian or some rock and roll singer has said about Christianity. I want to take him from the beginning and take it all the way through. So the law is made for that person. Then look what he says in verse 10. Did you notice in verse 10 that there's not a period after the word doctrine? Did you notice that? There is a thing there called a semicolon. And a semicolon means this, that the thought following it has a connection with the thought that preceded it. What he was just talking about preceding was the law. Now look at verse, uh, verse 11. Here's what goes along with the, with the law. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The law is connected to the gospel. Let me say this. You're really sore pressed if you say that you preach the gospel without bringing up sin and the violation of the law. Now, I've got some quotes here that I'll give you when I'm done of the old-time preachers and what they said about this. I'm not giving you nothing new. What I'm telling you today is old-fashioned. It's so old-fashioned that it's too old-fashioned for Baptists. I mean, Baptists like to go back to Spurgeon, but they don't want to go any farther back than that. But this is is old-fashioned stuff. This is the kind of stuff that was preached when the revivals took place. This is the kind of stuff that was preached when Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That was a Bunyan, right? Bunyan wrote that? That's, and I'll, I'll give you that quote in a little bit. But uh, I want you to notice that. The law is not made for righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient and so on and so forth. Now, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 says this. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. If sinners are going to know that they're sinners, it's going to have to be by the law. Romans 3.23 ain't working no more. Let me give you a couple examples. I worked for, uh, I was a roofer for 25 years. Roofer. Shingles. I didn't do any hot tar. I did rubber and shingles and all that stuff. But uh, I worked for a couple companies, and I got my own license and all that. But when I was working for one of the companies, uh, there was another Christian there, and we worked together. And uh, the yard man was, was the guy that was always supposed to make sure our trucks were loaded. If we needed anything, we went to him and all that. And we had developed a little relationship with him and trying to witness to him. We were always giving Romans 3.23, you know. Hey, Zach, you know, the Bible says all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and there's none right. Yeah, yeah, we're all sinners. ha, 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 ha. One day we walked in the shop, 
And uh, somebody had put a bunch of girly pictures up in the office. Not where the public would come in, but they put a bunch of pornography up there. So we got our work order and got out of there. And he came out and he said, hey, preacher. He said, uh, what do you think about all them pictures? I said, well, Zach, I'll tell you what I think about all those pictures. Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. I said, that's what I think about those pictures. And I was expecting him to go, ah. And he got this dumb look on his face, hung his head and walked away. I said, wow, touch of conviction there, you know. Hadn't seen that before. And within a day, those pornography was down. And I thought, what, what was the difference? You know what the difference was? I took a specific verse on a specific sin and nailed it right to the, right to the floor. Amen. Had another guy there named Jimmy. Jimmy was a good worker. Jimmy was strong. I mean, he was a typical roofer. He was one of these guys. You could you get a roll, three, 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 three square rubber on a roll is pretty heavy. Usually you've got a ladder over here, ladder over here, and you pump, pump up. One arm like this, guy's over there, and you walk it up and get it up there. Jimmy put the thing on his shoulder and take it right up. Typical roofer. He was strong, hardworking, and he'd get drunk every night. That's, what roof, that's a roofer. I don't know how they are down here, but back up north, that's the way it is. They work hard during the day, get drunk all night. I feel sorry for people, you know, that they'd get to have a, have a hire a company to put a roof on, you know, and the salesman come out, he's got a nice suit and tie on and all that, and he looks so good, and he, he gives them a good talk and all this and that, and they're so relaxed because, you know, this nice guy is going to put their roof on for him, and three days later, the crew shows up. <laughs> they look out the window and say, man, there was a jailbreak last night, and they're parked in my driveway. <laughs> That's the crew. But Jimmy would come to me, and he'd have this, he'd have this thing, and he'd confess to me. I, he must have thought I was a priest or something, and he'd say, oh, preachers, I really got drunk last night. And I'd, you know, Romans 3.23, ah, ah, ah. Finally, I got a little bit fed up with it, and I said, Jimmy, he came to me one day. I said, Jimmy, I said, look. I said, the Bible said, don't drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. He didn't laugh. He got that dumb look on his face and walked away. I said, wow, touch of conviction. What was the difference? The difference was I took a specific verse for a specific sin. You know what the law does? The law makes it specific. Romans 3.23 might get you into the conversation, but listen, Exodus chapter 20 will nail it right on the head. I, we, we did a lot of visitation in the housing projects in Toledo. And I'd walk in there and sit down at the table, you know, with these, you know, most of them were mothers there, you know, and all that. And we'd open up the Bible. You know what I'd begin with? I wouldn't begin in Romans chapter 3. I'd begin in Exodus chapter 20 and begin explaining all those sins. And then you've got Proverbs chapter 6, verses uh, 16 through 20. Seven things God hates. Six things God hates, seven are an abomination to him. Mark chapter 7, 21 to 23, 13 evils found in the heart of man. That specifically in those verses brings out pride. See, a lot of, a lot of good moral people are just full of cotton-picking pride, and that section nails pride right on the head. And, of course, Revelation 21, verse 8, uh, fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Hey, that covers liars. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 covers drunkards and sodomites. I mean, you go through that list, and I've had, the, I had these ladies sit at their table and just go, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Ready to get saved, amen? Never had that with Romans 3, 23. What was the difference? The difference is I used specific commandments from the law that nailed them in their sin. And by the way, they took the Ten Commandments down in Alabama. By the grace of God, as long as I can stand on the street corner and preach, the Ten Commandments are going to be proclaimed. But these, ten, you know, these commandments are the things that God uses. Look at, uh, 
Look at Romans chapter 3. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Boy, that stuff sure looks good. Man, I'm glad I'm close to it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, we normally stop there to prove that you can't work your way to heaven, but look at the next part. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's how you teach sinners that they're sinners. It's by the law. It's the thing that God uses, the thing the Holy Ghost can grab a hold of. It's not our illustrations. It's not our stories. It's the law. Black and white. This is what God says. You're guilty. What are you going to do? And you don't even have to say it that way. When I'd sit and talk to these people, we'd just go through these things, and boy, you see, you see them start to reel, you know. You know, you, you know the Spirit of God's getting them. They get nervous, they get edgy, and what have you. All you're doing is reading what the law says, and the Spirit of God's convicting them. Go back to Romans chapter 7. And uh, let's continue on in verse, look, look at the verse, oh, let's see here. Verse 9, he says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, See, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, everybody knows they're sinners. It hasn't appeared to them yet what, what that really means. But when you show them in black and white from the law, then it appears to be sin. He says that sin, uh, where am I at? But verse 13, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. And when a person gets to the place where they realize they're exceeding sinful, I'd call that conviction. And when they get to that place right there, you usually don't have to argue with them about, well, you know, you can't work your way to heaven. You're not good enough to get to heaven, you know. I mean, when that hits them and they're under conviction, they know if they don't get saved, they're going to hell. And it's just simply using what God has provided, and that's the law. Paul said somewhere in there, let me see if I can get back to it. Uh, yes, verse 7. Let's go back to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law of sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust. Now, what is lust? Say, lust is sin. All right, lust is a general. You can have lust for the opposite sex, a lust for power, lust for money, lust for food. You, know, you could have all kinds of lust. It's just a desire to do evil. Paul said, I didn't know I was that way until, he said, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Which one is coveting? Number 10, right? You know what Paul said? Paul said, I got through the other nine. I mean, Paul in his own testimony in uh, his Philippians said he was blameless in the sight of the law. He said, look, I can get through first, first four for God. I can get through out of my father and my mother, you know, not kill, commit adultery, steal, uh, lie. He said, I can even get pet. But man, when I got to number 10, whew, he said, number 10 revealed to me what I really was. He said, I was just full of lust. But it took commandment number 10. And when you would deal with people, you really don't know what commandment it's going to take. But you just bring out what the commandment, what the law says. And God knows what they need to hear. That's what Paul said happened to him. Now, let me, uh, 
Let me not take any more of your time, but a little bit more of your time. But let me give you some of the uh, some of the quotes. I mean, that's the basic idea behind the thing, and you can do with it whatever you want to do with it, however you want to do with it. That's 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 fine. But that's the basic idea: is using the law. And also, I, let me say this: the law was twofold. If you study the law, you know, it's, you know, you read through your Bible, you get into Exodus and Leviticus, and man, there's that one chapter in there where they, where they repeat what they brought to the to the temple, you know, the spoons and the snuffer and the, and the snuffer bowls, and, and it's it's every all twelve tribes brought the same exact things, and they wrote it every time, you know. I'm thinking, why don't they just say one and then put ditto after that and get to the next chapter? <laughs> But you go into Leviticus and you get through, the, get through that stuff and you understand the law is twofold. Number one, the law shows us what sin is. It's the commandments. And number two, it teaches us sacrifice. First part of the law says this is what you did. Next part of the law says this is what you've got to do to get right. And when we present Christ, what does the Bible say the law was? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So a lot of times in dealing with people, once we get through all that stuff, so, okay, you just pray with them right now. No, no, no. You get, you get to the under, they're under conviction. So, all right, let's see what we need to do and go all the way back to Genesis. You say, well, anyway, what you? listen, I know it, it takes a lot of time to do this and you're going to miss the kickoff and all that stuff. But listen, sinners need to take, you need to teach them. Go in all the world and teach all nations. We need to teach sinners how to get saved. So, you spend some time teaching them. And you go right back to the beginning. Here's Adam and Eve. When they sinned, what did God do? He had to kill an animal, right? They put leaves over them god says that's not going to work so he had to he didn't say he killed the animal but i reckon if you're going to skin an animal you're probably going to have to kill it amen it's probably going to be a bloody mess so for adam and eve to have their sins forgiven god had to skin that animal and make a bloody mess some innocent little animal had nothing to do with it i think it was a lamb somewhere in proverbs it talks about that god made the lambs for a covering but uh that's where it began you sinned, all right, here's what we need to do now to make a covering for your sin. I'll kill this innocent animal, shed its blood, and take its skin to cover you. Then the next story, Cain and Abel. They bring two sacrifices. One sacrifice is the best that Cain could do, best of the fruit of the ground, but no blood in it. Abel brings the sacrifice, and it has blood in it. And God says, I'll take that one and not that one. And then you can continue on, you know, however you want to go. You can go to the Passover. Here's the Passover. They're ready to leave. And God says, look, the death angel is going to come this night. And he said, the only way your firstborn son is going to be spared death is if I see blood on the doorpost from an innocent lamb. And all through the Old Testament, there's that sacrifice of the animal, especially the lamb, for the sins of the world. And then when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. Amen. Now, you go through that, they understand what Christ... You, you, you talk to the average person on the street and say, do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Oh, yeah. What does it mean? Well, I never thought about it. <laughs> well, what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Well, I'd always been taught that in Sunday school. But what does it mean? I don't know. How are you going to get saved if you don't even understand what that's all about? They need to be taught, here's the sacrifice. Christ died as a sacrifice. He shed his blood as a sacrifice for your sins. Rose again from the dead. So, you know, there's, there's, there's that aspect of it, too. So you give them the law, get them on a conviction, then you go through the sacrificial, the, the bloody aspect of it, where they, when they trust Christ, they know they're trusting in the sacrifice that Christ made and the blood that he shed for their sins, for the remission of their sins. Now, let me give you some of these quotes, and I'll be done, because this stuff sure is looking good up here. 
Here's a statement. Paris Reedhead, I'm not exactly sure who he is, but here's the statement. He said, when a hundred years ago, earnest scholars decreed that the law had no relationship to the preaching of the gospel, they deprived the Holy Spirit in the area where their influence prevailed of the only instrument which he uh, had ever armed himself to prepare sinners for grace. And I like that statement because it said earnest scholars. I'm always leery of earnest scholars. Another statement here, uh, and this is just introductory, from Martin Lloyd Jones. He said, "The trouble with people who are not seeking for a sa- the trouble with people who are not seeking for a savior and for salvation is that they do not understand the nature of sin. It is the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to man to a man's mind and conscience. That is why the great evangelical preachers, 300 years ago in the time of the Puritans and 200 years ago in the time of Whitfield and others, always engaged in what they called a preliminary law work. You know what that was?" They went into an area and just preached the fire out of those people. They didn't tell them how to get saved. They didn't tell them. They just preached the law. You're guilty. You're guilty. And if they didn't see any conviction, they were down the road. But if they saw these people coming under conviction, then they would present Christ. That was the preliminary law. Now, William Tyndale, he was around from 1494 to 1536. He said this, be cold, sober, wise, circumspect. Keep yourself low to the ground, avoiding high questions. Expound the law truly and open the veil of Moses to condemn all flesh and prove all men sinners and set at broach the mercy of our Lord Jesus and let wounded consciences drink of him. I started preaching in rescue missions. And as a young preacher, I was probably not as graceful as I am now, amen? Uh, I had a preacher friend of mine when we started out. He nicknamed me Scorch. He said, when you get from the pulpit, just like... (laughs) But I got down preaching at the rescue mission... And I had one guy for six months. He'd always, always give me a problem. His name was Dave. And I'd preach, you know, and he'd come up. He said, every, he said, every time you preach, you come down here and con- <clears throat> condemn us. You always condemn us. Six months later, he got saved. And he said, you know, I realized that you weren't condemning me. I was just under conviction. And so you're going to get accused of condemning people <coughs> if you preach the way you're supposed to. Until they get saved and realize, man, he was right. I was guilty and I needed to be condemned. That's what Tyndale said. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. The true and proper function of the law is to accuse and to kill, but the function of the gospel is to make alive. We cannot understand or desire to hear the gospel that Christ's saving work redeems from sin unless we have stood under the law. Apart from the law, we cannot recognize the greatness of what Christ does for us or to us. The gospel is thus directly related to the law. The proclamation of the law is the indispensable and necessary supposition for the preaching of the gospel. Old-fashioned religion here. He went on to say this, The first duty of the gospel preachers is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Now this is interesting. He said, We would not see nor realize it, what a distressing and horrible fall in which we would lie, if it were not for the law. And we would have to remain forever lost if it were not again helped out of it through Christ. Therefore, the law and the gospel are given to the end that we may learn to know both how guilty we are and to what we should again return. The law is therefore necessary to give knowledge to sin so that proud man who thought he was whole may be humbled by the discovery of his own great wickedness and sigh and pant after the grace which is set forth in Christ. Then he says this, Satan, the god of all dissension, stirreth up daily new sects or cults. And last of all, which of all other I should never have foreseen or once suspected, he has raised up a sect as such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. 
That was happening in Luther's day, just like they're doing it nowadays. He says, these people run around and all they do is preach grace and all they do is preach love and so on and so forth and they don't give them the law. Luther had the same problem we have. Amen. John Bunyan, in my preaching of the word, I took special notice of this one thing, namely that the Lord did lead me to begin where his word begins with sinners. That is to condemn all flesh, to open and allege that the curse of God by the law doth belong to and lay hold on all men as they come into the world because of sin. You know, if they would have preached grace, they probably had better results in those days. Amen. Here's what Finney said. I don't agree with everything Finney says, but here's what Finney said. He was around 17 uh, or 1800s. He says, This law then should be arrayed in all its majesty against selfishness and enmity of the sinner. All men know that they have sinned, but all are not convicted of the guilt and ill desert of sin. But without this, they cannot understand or appreciate the gospel method of salvation. Away with this milk and water preaching of a love of Christ that has no holiness or moral discrimination in it. Away with the preaching of a love of God that's not angry with sinners every day. He says this, Evermore the law must prepare the way for the gospel. To overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope, the introduction of a false standard of Christian experience, and to fill our churches with false converts. Time will make this plain. He said that in the 1800s. Has time made it plain? Wesley, I could go on with Wesley. I could go on with Spurgeon. In fact, I've got this all in a little booklet. I'll put it out on the table there uh, tonight or what have you, if that's all right, preacher. And, uh, you know, you can see all these quotes and, and, and what we went over today. But that's... Uh, that's my alternative method, brother. And it's come from frustration, and it's come from going to the Bible and seeing how God did it, and then seeing that the old-time preachers did it that way. And again, it's just food for thought. 